welcome to Bourbon and Birds by Kentucky Fried Politics. It's Nick Storm. On Bourbon and Birds, we pour a bourbon and shoot the bird with candidates, lawmakers, lobbyists, consultants, everyone in between, all in an effort to get down in the weeds and figure out the issues. This week's guest is Amy McGrath, the retired Marine fighter pilot who has a new book out titled Honor Bound. McGrath sits down with me in the Shelby County studio to discuss the book and talk about her future in politics after her loss to Mitch McConnell in 2020. Amy, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, great to be with you. So uh, your, your book is out, and by the way, it's uh, excellent. Really enjoyed listening to it and reading it. Um, I think it's, it's fun, too, when the author reads the book. Uh, it was fun to do. It took four days in a okay. studio to read the entire book. Um, but yeah, a lot of fun. What compelled you to, to sit down and, and put pen to paper here? I suppose get in front of a keyboard and, uh, yeah. and, and write the memoir. Well, it was a project that was over many years, actually. Um, after the, the House campaign in 2018, I sort of took a step back and tried to figure out why did I just do this? You know, why did I leave this this career in the military um, and come home and, and run? And it was sort of a self-exploration mm-hmm. um, looking at my life and the values that I um, that I you know formed here in Kentucky and in the military. And so I started writing um, chapters of my life and thought about this book project, trying to put them all together and um, was involved in that. And then when the Senate can- campaign kicked off, I, I couldn't finish it. Right. I had several things ready, but it wasn't put together. Mm-hmm. And that's where I had to get Chris Peterson, who helped me um, put the chapters together, sort of fill in the holes. And um, and then, you know, we finished it up right after January 6th. Right, right. Yeah. So you, the book is really 90% the military career and about 5% campaign and experiences on campaign. And, you know, as somebody, you know, I covered, I think you sat down with me in early 2018. Mm -hmm. I covered um, that congressional race up Mm -hmm. to the primary and I left journalism after the, the primary. So had an interesting um, relationship with your campaigns uh, from you know, the insider perspective, a journalist perspective, and then as somebody who just read about them in, in newspapers. And right. and reading the book was fascinating for me with, uh, you know, being able to get that experience and understand, well, here's what I was told about, Amy, <laughs> and here's what you told me. And then yeah. and then reading the book and, and filling those in, it was, it was really, really fascinating. And you've got uh, quite a life story. It was... Uh, it was really, really compelling stuff there. Well, I was lucky and growing up here in Kentucky, had an amazing family and um, I loved it. I loved the state. I loved my community and I was a very patriotic person and wanted to serve and then just got the opportunity to follow my dreams because, um, you know, the the law at that Mm -hmm. time that forbid women from doing what I wanted to do uh, changed right at the time I turned 18 years old and that opened everything up for me. And so I, I have always looked back on that and said, you know, I was very lucky mm-hmm. um, to, yes, there was a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication, perseverance, all of those things are important. But um, at the end of the day, I felt very grateful and feel that way. And you do talk about that in the book, you talk about these doors opening at just the right time for you. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about your faith. Do you, do you attribute 
these doors opening uh, to faith, to religion, or, or how do you uh, my, couch that? Yeah, I'm my faith, and I talk about this in the book. I'm somebody. I'm, I'm Catholic. Um, I grew up in a um, very Catholic family, surrounded by amazing people. I was taught by the Sisters of Notre Dame um, up in Northern Kentucky, and my faith has been important to me my whole life um, for many reasons. And one in the military was it was that connection to home. And mm -hmm. during combat, it was that sort of connection to um, being human and, and uh, the, the spirituality of, of just trying to assess what it is I was doing in the military mm -hmm. with, um, you know, with, with being a human. Right. And so um, it's it was something that was hard for me to talk about in the book to some degree. But um, on the campaign trail, I tried to make sure that, look, we're all Americans and I never want to impose my faith on someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and I've served with people from all walks of, of life and different faiths. And I, I respected that um, and do respect that. So it was important. And on <clears throat> on that point, it seemed like. Uh, would it be correct to say that everything sort of shifted for you post-Iraq? I wouldn't say everything. I would say that I had a shift. You're, mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. Um, after Iraq, a in terms of I had believed in my leaders. I believed in their leadership ability, and I believed that they were telling the truth all the way up. Mm -hmm. Until I came back from Iraq and over time, of course, we learned in this country that we really invaded another country and started a war for the first time in American history under complete false pretenses mm -hmm. and knew it. And we never did a thorough investigation as to why that happened in our in our country. And for for many people, they might just go on with their lives. But for somebody like me who fought in that war, who lost friends in that war, who did what it is I did in that war, which was, you know, killing people, right? I mean, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, there is a, there is a sense that I can't move on from that um, if the war was not justified to begin with. And so that was a real struggle with me. And it led me to um, make this determination that, you know, I don't have this blind faith mm -hmm. in our leaders anymore. And it also made me want to be one of those leaders so that um, I'm in the room when these decisions are made to be able to share with people, what is it like to be operational out there? All right. I can put a bomb through a window, but do you know who's on the other side of that window? No, we don't. And here are the limitations of intelligence and here are the limitations of what our weapons can do. And it's not necessarily black and white. And I just felt very strongly about that after the Iraq war. But before that, you know, you say that you had grown up questioning things that you would always find out for yourself, yeah. but you hadn't necessarily been political, right? I mean, you right. were pretty much a, a moderate and believed whatever the leaders say, that's you know, that's the path we're going to take. Yeah, I believed in the leadership. <clears throat> I believed that, you know, if you got to that position, by and large, uh, those people had integrity. And most uh, 
members of Congress and people who were leaders at the end of the day, they might be one political party or, or the other, but they loved America and they represented this country and they, they wanted to do what was best for this country. You know, the John McCain types, that's what I believed. And it was the Iraq war where I started to sort of, you know, not believe that as much, you know, how did we do this? Why did we do this? Mm -hmm. Why did our leaders lie to us? Um, and then with the election of 2016, the, the person that we elected president mm -hmm. was somebody of, you know, such poor character with so little integrity. All of the things that I had been taught that public officials should have, that military leaders should have, you know, he did not have. And that was very scary to me for an American. I was like, well, how did how did this happen? Well, we need better leaders in this country. And not only that particular person, but all of these members of Congress who, you know, were just saying one thing and doing another. Yeah. So uh, to back up on your, your career, you start off as a, what's known as a backseater. You go to the Naval Academy, you, you, you make your way, your, your lifelong dream, uh, and, and become uh, a backseater. You're, you're yeah. in the, in the cockpit, but over time, uh, you're able to to end up in the in the in the front seat. Yeah. Tell us tell us about that experience, and I and also I want to I want to hear about your experience on uh, on 9/11, September sure. 11th, and, and um, on the tarmac. Well, I became a backseater because my eyes were bad. Right. My I inherited that from my father, along with a lot of other good things, but I inherited the bad eyes from dad, and um, and so I knew while I was at the Naval Academy that I could. At that point, only be a backseater because PRK and LASIK, which mm -hmm. is eye surgery, was available, but not um, in the military yet. Okay, you could you couldn't fly high performance jets and have had that surgery at that point yet. So that was my option to be a backseater, which was you know if you if you remember Top Gun, it was sort of goose. Well, I I wasn't <laughs> in an F fourteen, I was in an F eighteen, which is more air to ground right. um, weapon systems, uh, high performance weapon systems, mm -hmm. uh, communication, navigation, that kind of thing. And that's that's the real role of the of That the is the real role actually, of yeah. the F-18 and yeah. certainly the F-18 Delta. I mean, it was a really great time to be in that community as a backseater because you were needed um, in that community. And then when we went to combat, the backseaters were, were very much a part of all of the tactics and everything that was going on. So um, that's what I did in my first tour. Mm -hmm. I did two combat tours during that time frame, one to Afghanistan and one to Iraq as a weapons officer. Mm -hmm. um, and then I transitioned to the front seat because I got my eyes fixed and I applied. Uh, they didn't take me at first, so I didn't get in the first year and reapplied and got in that second year. And it was a lifelong dream. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned in the book, um, I knew that I would be hit in terms of promotion. Um, I knew I would lose my qualifications and all those things and I'd have to start from scratch again. But it mm -hmm. was one of those things where it was a dream, it was worth it, and, uh, and I loved it. That was fascinating to me and I hadn't really ever thought about that piece before that to make that transition you're basically going back to flight school and mm -hmm. learning all over again. But here you are with two combat tours. Yeah. And, you know, and a bunch of uh, I, I, I equate yeah. it to graduating from college 
and then going back to college to get the same degree again. Right. <laughs> but you're so your professors, you're like you're they're your peers, <laughs> but you have to go through their courses. Right. So it was easy. Mm -hmm. Like I, I feel that that those two years of my life were so easy in terms of like my job. I learned how to play golf. I <laughs> I taught my dog to be a therapy dog. I mean, I just had I was single at the time, so I had lots of extra time. I met my husband during that time frame. And um, and it was wonderful. It was a nice two year break in the midst of this 24 year career of of a uh, uh, lot of intensity. I want to pivot with you. You 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 did serve there in Afghanistan and were uh, you know, Afghanistan again is, uh, is, is taking national headlines. Yep. Uh, there's the troop withdrawal and yeah. obviously a lot of opinions out there yeah. as somebody who's been there. How do you, how do you look at the situation unfolding? And, um, I mean, what, do, what do we do? Yeah. Well, that's the, what do we do is the question we've been asking for the last 20 years in Afghanistan. It is not a black and white war. There is no easy answer. To Afghanistan. Um, I think what's going on currently right now is, is very scary. We're seeing the country fall to the Taliban. And we knew that it was going to be rocky. Uh, I don't think anybody thought it was going to be that quick, that the, the fall was going to happen this quick. So we, I believe, uh, have an obligation to um, get the people who helped us out of Afghanistan. Um, and I know that President Biden is working on doing that right now to protect those people that that mm -hmm. really laid their lives down for us for so many years. I think if we're going to withdraw, we have to do it in a responsible way. Um, and my hope is that we will still be able to do that. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not looking good right now. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one. And I, you know, I'm sure like you, I, I've had conversations that just sort of pop up, be, you know, at the grocery store or at the gas station and talk to a vet and, you know, the guys that have, have served over there. And, and, you know, they ask the question, you know, why, why did my buddy die? Why, you know, I asked that question too. And if you read my book, um, you'll, there's a whole chapter on that. I had a, a colleague, a, a friend of mine who I worked with every day, um, not come back from a helicopter mission. He was shot down by an RPG. And that was um, a turning point for me because of that reason. I, it, it was, the war was very personal at that point. When, when he didn't return, I, I found myself not being able to explain to my family or to his family why it is that he passed. Why did he die? Why did he have to die? What, what are we accomplishing here? Because um, we all knew that as soon as we left Helmand province, that, that it would go right back to the way it was for the last, you know, 500 years. Right. And so it was just a, a really tough place. And I think one of the things that my book tries to do in, in the chapter I talk about was explain to people back here in America how just how complex that war is. Um, for the people on the ground, I was a member of the detainee review boards uh, there, which mm -hmm. is basically a, a, a prison for um, Afghans who we captured on the battlefield. In mm -hmm. other words, they they were trying to place an IED somewhere or they were shooting at us or something. And instead of killing them, we captured them. Right. right? So what do you do with them once once they're captured? Mm -hmm. um, well, in today's day and age, we, we put them in, we detain them and sometimes for years. 
Now in Afghanistan, you don't get a trial. It's not like it's a war zone. It's not like back here where you get, you know, due process back over there. It's, you know, you get thrown in jail. And, and just to try to explain to people the complexities, um, you know, of a 12 year old boy, for example, who places an IED under a bridge. Well, he's our enemy, right? Well, you know, he's been in prison four or five years and you finally pull the string on his story and he put that ID under a bridge because he wanted to buy enough or get enough money to buy a wife and three goats so he could start a life. He didn't have parents. He had no prospects. Um, he could have actually fought for the Taliban, you know, and probably made some money, but he, somebody gave him an offer. And that's what he did. He doesn't understand fingerprints. The fingerprints are, his fingerprints are all over that IED. And we found that IED and we, we found him and put him in jail. Right. But is he, is he an enemy of the United States? You know, um, right. you talk about that. He probably has no concept he of has, what America right. is. He has no concept of democracy, does not know what America is, cannot read. He wants to be a shepherd. He wants to get his sheep and he wants to buy a wife so he can start a life. And at this point, you know, he was 16 or 17 years old and still in jail. So, I mean, what what do we do? It, it's it's stories like that. That is Afghanistan. Well, and we were talking a moment ago about President Biden. He's he's inherited this uh, this problem. And, and you know, this is something that started under the Trump administration, the troop withdrawal. And uh, and it's something that he's figuring out now. Um you know, for you, you took a chance on President Biden. You were one of the first to endorse. Absolutely. Uh, when very he wasn't, proud of that. wasn't doing very well. Mm -hmm. um, what's the, how do you rate his performance so far in office? And what's that relationship like? I think he's done a fantastic job um, for what he has been inherited. A massive COVID problem that we have um, trying to uh, pull the country out of that. Um, the infrastructure bill that is being pushed through right now. Um, I think it's going to take a long time to rebuild our alliances and partnerships around the world after the Trump administration has done what they've done. Um, I think the Afghanistan part of what has happened is, is sort of, you know, a mark that isn't, um, isn't a great mark right now. We'll see what happens, but I can't fault him for the decision that he has made in that. Um, look, he, he is a common sense kind of person that wants to use our democracy to get things done and wants to use our government to help people and get things done. And I just think in today's environment, uh, he's had pretty darn good success so far in what, six months right. of being right. in office. If you think about the <clears throat> last administration, what we had an infrastructure week every week, right? <laughs> and in and, and the last administration, the Republicans had the House and the Senate. Right. No, he, he doesn't and, have and, a and great And the only thing here. that they did in that time frame was cut taxes for rich people. That was it. And got us into more debt. So if you look at what he's been able to do with a Democratic House and a very, very tiny margin of a Senate um, in six months, I think that's uh, that's a really good good sign so far. So what's, how do you interact now? You're, you're on the other side of a campaign. Uh, you've got foundation, you're going to be a professor. How do you 
effectuate change. We still have like, opinions and beliefs and, and want, want to see the United States grow in a certain direction. Right. How, you know, how do you Well, do I have a, a couple of organizations um, that I've started. One is a super PAC called Democratic Majority Action. Um, we started this we, basically after the loss in November to Senator McConnell. Uh, within 48 hours, I rolled my entire finance operation over mm -hmm. to help the Georgia races, right. which a lot of people felt could not be won. And we did it. We worked when everybody, when a lot of people were hanging it up, we were working hard and uh, getting, you know, raising money and, and getting it down there to get out the vote in Georgia for our country. Mm -hmm. And boy, did that matter. I was going to pull that down after January 6th. And guess what happened on January 6th? Right. You know, um, we had an insurrection on the Capitol where I felt like, okay, well, now we're going to need to get some resources to oust these um, traitors who voted against our country on January 6th, the ones that can be defeated. And so that's what I've been working on um, in terms of, you know, trying to go uh, after those folks who really have have put their partisan um, way above their country's interests. Mm -hmm. The second thing I have is Honor Bound Inc., which is um, a 501c4 organization. It's the same title as my book. And that organization is to inspire and then support women who have served, primarily women, who have served the country in some capacity, not just military, but maybe CIA or Department of Justice or something like that, mm -hmm. to think about politics um, and jump into races that matter. Why? Because I happen to believe that people who um, have that experience of serving make really good leaders in government and that that's the type of person that we need. So um, that's nationwide. So I'm doing that around the country. I'm really excited about that initiative too. So to me, it's about getting better leaders. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have a voice and I'm out on Twitter and I say things, And but I mean, I'm not in office. So let's get people with the same values that love this country uh, into office. And that's what those two organizations are. And you'll be uh, teaching diplomacy at the Patterson School. Mm -hmm. I assume given everything that you're working on, they're giving you some pretty wide breadth here to, to continue to be pretty political. Well, I mean, I what I'm teaching at the University of Kentucky Patterson School is national security policy. Right. So that is my expertise. Right. It's... Um, political in the sense of if you want to talk Clausewitz and Sun Tzu. Sure. Well, I, I guess uh, but, what I'm saying is not that you'll teach politics to the to the students, right. but that you'll be you'll be active on the other oh, sure. end in a political yeah. sense. And, yeah. and I am active. I want to help candidates who love this country. Um, but it's not um, necessarily a partisan thing. Honor Bound is a nonpartisan organization. It's it's to get better leaders in this country. So okay. that's okay. that's what it's about. And then you leave the door open in the, in the memoir. I, you know, you're not not yet saying what's what's <laughs> what's next for you. I, what you know? What do you look at? I know, you know, after uh, the twenty eighteen race, you almost beat Congressman Barr. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were just that close. Mm -hmm. um, you were really talked into to running against McConnell. Chuck Schumer called you over there a few times. Um, well, I would disagree with okay. that to okay. some extent. Um, I made the decision myself to do it. And um, yes, I did talk to Senator Schumer as I talked to lots of other people before that. But um, jumping into that race was something that I think I needed to do. Um, mm. And I think our country needed. So that was that was not, um, no one talked me and no one's talked me into anything in my life. And that's fair. You do say mm. that you, you, you really molded over and uh, met with him several times. Yep. And I, that is, you know, that is fair. I don't think 
you know, anybody should enter a race without laying it all out on a table yeah. and, and figuring it out. Yeah. But what, you know, what metrics do you put in front of you at looking at, at ever running again? I mean, what has to line up? Well, I think, first of all, it has to be right for your family. Um, we've done, my family and I have done two really hard races here mm -hmm. in Kentucky. And, um, you know, for now, like I said, I think other people need to pick up the pack. And that's sort of a military term of, yeah. of getting in the ring and doing it. And I want to be in a supporting role for, for those people who, who do do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think public service is important. And, um, you know, if there is an opportunity where I feel like I can serve this country again uh, in a way that matters um, and it works for my family, you know, I'm not going to close the door to that. Uh, but right now I am very much focused on helping others get into those positions mm -hmm. because it just wasn't in the cards here, yeah. um, at least in the last four years for me. And it, and it seems like another chapter here. I mean, mm -hmm. you're really transitioning from that and have a lot of really interesting, amazing opportunities here right now. So I'm excited to see what happens yeah. uh, out of all that. And, you know, through the book, you talk about your relationship as well. And I want to you know, kind of end on this note, your relationship with your dog, Monk. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm a dog and, person. And I understand you got another dog after the, the campaign. I did. So it was um, a campaign promise. Yes. To my children. And um, I can always say I kept my campaign promises. Um, my children had asked me for a dog because they knew about Monk, my old dog, which I talked about in the book. My my old dog was a chocolate lab and he passed away a month before my first son was born. Mm -hmm. But in our house, he was so important to me because um, I had him for 13 years and he is everywhere in our house. There's a picture of my old dog oh. somewhere. So my children have been growing up seeing this dog, <laughs> but never knowing him. And um, they had asked me, can, can we please get a dog? And I just couldn't do it during the campaign. You know, um, it was just too hard to, to train sure. him and to do it right. And so I said, once it's over, we're going to do it. And we did. We, we got Oscar. Um, he is a, a yellow lab. And we got him at six weeks old in December of uh, last year. And he's now enormous, 75 <laughs> pounds of, uh, of love. And it's a lot of fun. Now, will so. you do the, the therapy training with Oscar as well? We'll see. That is a lot of work. Um, I did that at a time in my life um, that I didn't have children and I wasn't married. Right. And I had a lot right. of time. I was living in South Texas, going through flight training again, which was relatively easy for me. And so um, I felt like I had the time to do that. Now with three kids um, and all the organizations that I'm <laughs> running and doing, um, I don't know if I'll have the time for that. So Oscar might just be barely trained um, <laughs> at this point. But I'm also um, coaching my my two little boys soccer oh, this fall. Yes. So I'm, I'm getting back into soccer. I was a, a soccer player in college and excited about that really cool start stories playing soccer and, and basketball and everything else i mean really an interesting life story definitely read the book and take those in i bet there's one in particular just uh I, I do want you to share just to end out on you talk about being in egypt uh mm -hmm. and playing and yeah uh you know just to, to set it up for you the the egyptians uh, who are our partners our allies yep. didn't didn't really like you being around <laughs> <laughs> it was um it was 2001 
when we did Operation Bright Star in Egypt and my squadron went out there and I'm quite certain the Egyptians had never seen a woman in the cockpit before because I remember landing in Venezuela Air Base in the cockpit and the F-18 opening up and seeing the Egyptian maintainers there and I took my helmet off and I, I really thought their heads exploded at that point. <laughs> but, um, but it was fun. We did the exercise, uh, which was very professional and um, important exercise for a few weeks. And then at the end of the exercise, the commander of the of the Egyptian Air Force unit that we did the exercise with um, challenged our Marine unit to a soccer match. And the Egyptians are serious about soccer. I mean, they they had their own unit team with, you know, cleats and uniforms and everything. We were a bunch of Marines. Right. And my commanding officer said, well, we can we could probably form a soccer team. We have regulation green on green, you know, shorts and T-shirts. We could we could do this. We had sneakers. Nobody had cleats. You know, we had sneakers. Um, but we my commanding officer looked at me and said, well, would you play on this team? And I was in my 20s. I had played Division One soccer for, for Annapolis. And so I was in pretty good shape. I said, yes, sir, I can do that. No problem. And the, the Egyptians uh, found out and they wanted me to wear long pants and all kinds right. of stuff. And right. my commanding officer stood up for me and said, nope, she's a Marine like everybody else. She's going to wear, you know, shorts like everybody else. or We're not going to play. And good on him, you know, because yeah. he didn't cave. And... Um, so we, we played the match and we, we lost miserably seven to one, but I held my own. I mean, I was in good shape and the the crowd was just enormous. It was this huge stock, soccer stadium filled, completely filled, uh, not a seat empty. And it was completely filled by men. There was not a single woman in the stands. Mm -hmm. And so here I am playing against all men with a, you know, an all male crowd and at one point I went up for a header um, and it just so happened I went up for a header against the the uh, commander who was the team captain on the Egyptian side. And I don't know who hit the ball, but we both came back down off the header and he fell to the ground and I stayed on my feet and the crowd just went nuts. And at the end of it, the uh, the Egyptian general came and, and gave me the MP MVP award, which the crowd went nuts again. But it was fun because um, I really felt like I was able to, sh to show, you know, people who had maybe never seen a woman do certain things, mm. um, you know, hey, we can hold our own. It's really your story, right? Yeah. And time and again, you're, you're proving it. Yeah, that's right. And, and, it, and it's little things. You know, it's just little things. It may not... It's not going to change the world. It's not going to change our diplomatic relations with Egypt. It's probably not going to change the rights of women in Egypt or anything like that. But it was just those little things where, you know, you're, you're changing hearts and minds um, one by one. Yeah. Well, Amy, thank you so much for your time. Great. Great to be with you. Awesome. All right. This is good. Yeah. We didn't talk about the bourbon. <laughs> oh, that's true. We didn't. <laughs> Huge thanks to Clayton Luce with Dark Star TV for the video and audio production and to Forsake Media. Thanks for listening to Barbin and Birds by Kentucky Fried Politics. Make sure you're following all the Frankfurt gossip on KentuckyFried.com.